peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for every word of your scripture that you have given us to reveal yourself to us, to reveal your nature to us, to reveal your plan and your glory to us. Help us, Lord, to have eyes to see you, to have ears to hear you, to hear through this ancient song your love for us, your love for for our city, Lord, and help us through your love be moved to love our city the way you do. We pray this in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Y'all may be seated. Now, I know nothing about my appearance or my demeanor might tip this off or indicate this in any way. But as a young man, I was a pretty huge fan of the author Louis L'Amour. For, for those who aren't familiar with him, who, he's, the books that you will find are starting to get kind of dusty and gray on shelves, out, like usually in places like my grandpa's hoard of them. Uh, they are Western novels, usually set in, in very arid, boring climates. Uh, Something about them always appealed to me, though. Something always just stuck to me. It, it, like, you can take the man out of the wilderness, as I clearly was, but you can't take the urge to punch a bear out of a man. <laughs> it's just, there's something primal. There's something deep inside of us that, that wells up. It's almost like we were made to be placed in a garden wilderness somewhere. I don't really know why. I, that, that might stick. But I love the stories of Louis L'Amour because of the natural aspect, because of the homesteading aspect, but also because they had this deep affection for these little backwater, nowhere communities. You could tell that Louis L'Amour really loved these little pockets of life in the midst of a vast wilderness of nothingness. And that, that really is, in many ways, a lot of the appeal of the, the, the cowboy stories that many of us grew up with, that there, there's these little bits of struggle, a fight of life in the midst of a, a vast plains, mountains, deserts, barren. They're, they're just these little testaments to the, the, the human will and struggle against nature. But the, these tales also possess a whole new meaning to me personally, because L'Amour set a lot of his stories in western New Mexico and Arizona. Now, I don't know if you've been on the other side of of Albuquerque. Whenever I tell people I'm from New Mexico, people are always like, oh, beautiful places like Ruidoso and and like Red River. And like, yes, those are pretty. But most of New Mexico is is a barren wasteland. Let's be be pretty clear what what, what we're talking about here. The the windward side of the Rocky Mountains is a constantly windy desert where the only people who are attached to the land have always been the miners a long time ago, the loggers, the natives. In, in, In these places, though they're a shadow of what they once were in terms of economics, in terms of community, they're very important to me because they're the hills and the wind that formed me. <laughs> I have a deep connection to them because that's my home. That's where I am from. 
and, and Lamar was a special author to me because he was one of the only people that I saw growing up who looked at that ugly, red, cactus-covered, jagged landscape and said, that is beautiful. That's the kind of place I want to write stories about. That's the kind of place I love. And that's, for him, that really was the kind of thing that formed these stories of cowboys and explorers. It was the thing that formed for him a vision of home. There was constantly families, settlers, children in these stories set in this place. And I know that for a lot of us, when we think about this, when we think about the, the barren wilderness of New Mexico, that might not be home for, for all of y'all. But you've got a home. I, I know many of y'all are probably from here. In home, though there might be these things that stick out, there might be these romantic stories connected to it. More often than not, it's just a casserole with your family. <laughs> home is the hymns you sing at church. It's the old lady down the street. The thing that Louis L'Amour romanticized there is the same sort of thing that we feel constantly whenever we, we travel far, that, that homesickness that we get. It's the same thing. It's the love of a place. It's the love of an area where memories have happened. It is the love and the connection to a community that you can't really put in words. Uh, the, the closest I can get, I hear in like John Denver tunes of down country roads. <laughs> I, I, I can still kind of feel it. It's a vibe. It's, it's a check. But this sentiment, this warm and reminiscent feeling is actually in many ways one of the things we find frequently in the Psalms of Ascent. This longing, this, this expectation, this warmth, it, 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 in this case, is the song of a Jew returning home from their pilgrimage. It's the tales of, of settlers and lawmen sometimes. It's the tales of brigands in, in, in hills and valleys and desert. It's really not all that different in many ways from those stories that I grew up with, that I know many of y'all grew up with. When we look at the Psalms of Ascent, we see songs of, of the Lord's faithfulness and his deliverance, but we also see psalms of longing. We see psalms of hurting. We see psalms of, of, of thinking about home and remembering what it's gonna be like to go home and work hard. Thinking about the farm back home in many of the, these pilgrims' cases. in Remembering that the Lord brought them from the farm to the city and home again. These are the songs and the tales of the people of Israel. These are, these are the psalms of ascent. And yet all of them in many ways are centered around one thing, the journey to the city of Jerusalem. So to that extent, Psalm 122 that we read today is, is incidentally like the Psalm of Ascents of Psalm of Ascents. <laughs> It is one of the most centralized ideas in all of this section of literature because this psalm that we read today is an homage. It's a love song to the city of Jerusalem. Now, again, for those who don't have a strong connection to their home, it might be a kind of weird thing to be like, why are they singing to a city? 
Like, what, what is the point of something like this? What is the point of a joyful noise that's centered around the, this destination? Well, Psalm 122 is a song that is dedicated not just to the journey, as many of the songs are, not just to the experience, but to the destination. It is a song dedicated to simultaneously the city of God and the home that people are traveling from there. And so when we look at this, it actually helps us to understand from a theological view what it means to love the city that we are put in, to love our home, and to love wherever it is that the Lord might put us to be a new home. It is a love song for wherever you are <laughs> in that sense. And so we're gonna look at this today in three points. Uh, we're gonna look at how the Lord loves his, the city and how this will be moving us. The three points that we'll be looking at is the joy of the city of God, the blessing of the city of God, and the mission of the city of God. I'll start with point one and look back at the, the scripture today. Uh, verse one says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Think for a moment about how this statement would, would sound, particularly for somebody who lived in rural Judea, ancient Israel, the, out, and out in the sticks of Israel. Three times per year, the average Jew would make a pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem from wherever they lived. If they were seeking to faithfully keep the Levitical law, they would travel for the Passover, which was the big one, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. Each of these three journeys, each of these three trips would be a great journey. For some people who live nearby, it wasn't too bad. There were, there were lots of cisterns. There was places to get water. There was places to stop and rest. Uh, there, there was some shade. There was some well-kept roads. But for some people, for those people who, who lived in the equivalent of like the like far distant middle of nowhere, like Des Moines, New Mexico kind of places, I, I grew up in a place like that. I can claim that. I know how it feels to travel like great ways <laughs> to get anywhere near a Walmart. <laughs> it, 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 it's hard sometimes, and it's a lot harder when you're traveling through the hot, scorching desert, when you're traveling through the wind-blown hills of Judea. It's even harder when there's marauders and raiders and bandits actively seeking to harm, to assault, to take from you. And so it makes sense why we see at the beginning of this psalm, let's go, let us go to the house of the Lord. But it also makes sense why in verse two we see, oh, thank the Lord we've arrived. <laughs> Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together with nobody in it that's trying to rob me right now without the sun beating down on my head. You can feel the joy there. To which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. We see the, the, the gratitude that this journey is done. We see the thankfulness that they're, they're, they're out of the sun for a moment. And it's not an, it was not an easy thing for them to make this journey to the city of the Lord. 
It, it would have cost anybody who, who sought to make it, not just the sacrifices that they were going to make, it, but the complications of the journey, having to leave the farm, having to leave behind the household, having to go and to make these, this sacrifice would have been costly. You, but you could receive, at the end of this journey, something that truly made it worth it. Because the end of this journey, the point of this pilgrimage was to go to the house of the Lord to make sacrifice and to receive blessing from God. To go to receive the remission of sins, the blessing of thankfulness and gratitude, the remembrance of what the Lord has done Let's compare this journey and this destination to our journey here today. Uh, Y'all are all, in fact, here. Uh, You might not be here, but you are, in fact, here. And and you got here by some sort of journey, by some sort of traveling. Many many of you rolled out of bed at 8 or 8.30. If you have little kids, probably more like 5.45. you poured yourself a cup of coffee, you've read the news, you got dressed, you maybe wrestled pants onto a toddler this morning, watched them like pitter around with a waffle that they weren't actually eating while you were telling them, please, please just eat. Just put calories in your body so you won't complain later. And they're like, I am eating, but they're not eating. You piled into the van, you drove here, you realized you forgot your Bible, even though your wife told you to grab your Bible, but you decided to just better use your phone Bible today. It's the inspired app. It'll be okay today. Then then your toddler said they're hungry again, and you you remind them about the waffle, and they ask what waffle, and you have to pray to the Lord for the forgiveness. You've been on a journey (laughs) to get here. We've all been on, on some sort of journey. I'm on the part of the journey where I got here, and then I realized that my toddler got yogurt on my shirt, and I tried to wipe the yogurt off in the bathroom, and it just doesn't come off. So we've been on this journey to get here. You know how it goes. It might have been a slightly stressful morning. But the question is, would you have made this same journey if that experience was three to seven days long through a desert without air conditioning, without the, the, the comforts and the security of a, a, a society where we can trust people aren't going to be shooting at us from the side of the road. It, it's a very different thought process when we genuinely think of what the experience of this pilgrimage would have been and for goodness sake, it's, it's really hard sometimes to take a five-minute journey just to like get to church completely sane today. Envisioning how hard this must have been then really deepens for us the understanding of the joy that is being sung for here. The, 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 the satisfaction of actually arriving is not just a, oh yeah, it's church day. <laughs> It's a, I made it and I'm not dead. <laughs> I made it and I didn't, do not have a heat stroke. I made it and I finally, for that one time per year, get to hear your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. What a treasure. What, what, what an absolute joy this journey and the destination was. 
And it really, if we're being honest, if we're self-analyzing here, pokes at us and asks us the question, do we genuinely recognize each week the joy that we have at the end of the journey here? It might have been stressful. It really is hard to, to get a toddler dressed. I, I am there. <laughs> it's really hard. But we have here every single week the good news that our sins have been forgiven. We have here the good news every single week that a sacrifice has been made for us. Every single week we get to celebrate the fulfillment of the Passover. We get to celebrate the the fulfillment of the, the booths that the spirit now dwells with us. We don't need a tabernacle. This is the tabernacle. God tabernacles with us now. Every single week we get to celebrate with gratitude without having to bring one of our pets and sacrifice them. We, we, we get to celebrate with joy the good gifts that the Lord has given us. And the question is, do we hold them as valuable as the psalmist here would? We are in the house of a living God with a sacrifice forever applied to us. Praise God for the goodness that we have received. Do we genuinely hold it as the treasure that it is? It's a lot easier for us to get here, but we mustn't let the cheapness of this journey mar the richness of the gift that we have been given in the gospel. We didn't have to come far to get here, but Christ had to cross an infinite gap to come to us to pay for our sins for our shame, to forgive us, to love us, and to give us an identity in him. That was a costly journey he made. A very costly journey. It cost him everything. And in return, he calls us to give thanks to the Lord. We mustn't become numb to the riches that we have received in Christ. We get to lift up with joy and gratitude every single week. We have the honor of coming here because of the Lord's pilgrimage. Our pilgrimage is greatly shortened in journey, but greatly heightened in value. And so even when we come here half-hearted, we get to lift up in praise and joy and thankfulness what the Lord has done. And this, this is actually where we see, it's not just for us that we do this though. That the the pilgrimage that Israel went on and the pilgrimage that we went on to come here actually have a similar effect for the community as well. And this is our second point today. The blessing of the city of God. One of the, it's not worthwhile spending all of our time pittering around with languages a lot of the time. A lot of people get really lost in the biblical languages, but every once in a while there's, there's some fun facts here and there. One of my favorite ones, and I, I find this kind of hilarious as a history nerd too. Do any of y'all happen to know off the top of your head what the word Jerusalem means? It means the city of the Lord's peace. This is a funny name to me because if you know anything about Jerusalem, modern or historical, it's not a very peaceful place. (laughs) 
It never has been. Like, I, I'm pretty sure Expedia.com describes it as a perfect place to see the sights and be in the sights of a missile. It, it, it is a dangerous place, and it has been for thousands of years. It, it is a place of peace. It's not even a place of peace today. So why is it called the city of the Lord's peace? The most besieged city in human history it's been over, like we can look back and see it's been taken by the Moors, by the Solomaic dynasty, the Khans, the, the Romans, the Greeks, the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, the Egyptians, the Crusaders, the Canaanites, the Medians, the Persians, the Assyrians. It's not a city of peace, for goodness sake. Six Flags has six flags. It's got like a thousand <laughs> at this point. Why would the Lord, by his servant David, call it the, the city of Jerusalem? Why would he choose that name? Was he wrong? Was the Lord crazy in what he was doing when he, when he called for this to be the name? Why would he choose this place in the middle of nowhere to be his dwelling place? Well, we see in verse 5 some direction here. For re- reading through verse 8, Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace be with you. Peace in the city of peace is an ironic prayer if there is no peace there. But this is where we have to look back in scripture and see the historical guide that we have for this place. The first time we encounter the city of Jerusalem in scripture is actually all the way back in Genesis chapter 14, we, we get this strange story where Abraham it, has been given a promise by God, and his son, his nephew Lot gets in trouble, and Abraham has to go and rescue him, and he gets a bunch of treasure, and he's coming back from this journey, and he crosses paths with this regal priestly king named Melchizedek. Melchizedek, we're told, is the king of the city of Salem or Salim, depending on how you pronounce it. And and now this fabulously named, fabulously adorned king is honored by Abraham, and he gives him a blessing. He he gives him a tenth of what he owns. But we don't really see the place show up much again until later, where after it's conquered in the uh, incursion of the promised land and Joshua takes the place, King David is the first one to highlight it. What he does at this place is he says, this will be the place where we will dwell with God. The city of Salem, the city of peace, will be the city of the Lord's peace. Jeru Salem. It's not just a city of peace anymore. It is more than that. The city of the Lord's peace. In that that transition is actually the key to understanding what is meant, what, what, what the, the centrality of Jerusalem and all of this actually means. Because we see here echoes back to a promise that was made by God to David 
in the city of Jerusalem. It, it was in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where, the day, where after bringing the ark into the city, God speaks to David and says these words. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. These words theologians call the Davidic covenant, God's promise to David. And in them we find the real cause for the city's name. The city of the Lord's peace is called the city of the Lord's peace because the son of David kept the promise that was made to David. He himself, the son of David, walked through the gates of Jerusalem and was praised, Hosanna, the son of David has come. It's him, the promised one, the one we were looking forward to. And yet instead of sitting and, and ruling forever from that city at that moment, though he committed no sins, he was struck with the rod of men and disciplined with the whips of men. He did so because he bore our sin for us, forever making peace between man and God. Jerusalem is the city of the Lord's peace because peace himself entered into that city and gave himself to us. He paid the debt of righteousness we owed and gave us a status a forever covenanted, forever united to the Lord himself. Christ is our peace. Christ is our righteousness because the son of David kept the promise made to David in the city of the Lord. It is now the city of the Lord's peace. And we see here that Christ is our home. We see here something pointing all the way to the end of scripture where when Christ returns, we dwell with him in a place called New Jerusalem. This little arc that we've just tracked, there's many other steps along the way, is why we look to the city of Jerusalem. The, the, that pile of rocks that's in the Middle East right now, it's cool. It's a great tourist destination. But what we are looking to, the city of the Lord's peace is the city that is run by Christ. <laughs> it is the place where we meet him, where we dwell with him. We are present with him and we look forward to the day when the new and final Jerusalem is brought down where we can dwell with him forever. That's what we're looking forward to. That's why Jerusalem is good news for us too. <laughs> but not just for us, actually, for our neighbors as well. And this is our last point, the mission of the city of God. Historian and sociologist Rodney Stark once described in his book, The Rise of Christianity, a very bleak Roman world. 
he, he, Rodney Stark was a, is a, or was a scholar who studied the, the beginnings of movements of faith. He was really famous for his study on Mormonism, but he actually was not a believer himself. So his descriptions of this are, are kind of shocking. He describes the citizens of the Roman Empire as so afraid of disease that they would isolate and ostracize their own family members into sick communities and go nowhere near them, leave them to die apart, usually outside of the city. He describes Roman citizens as so aristocratic, so in, unequal in their wealth that the, the poor had, or the rich had the right literally sometimes to collapse portions of the city wall onto slums, onto poorer portions, so that they could extend their construction projects out and build on top of poor communities. The, the thing that hurts me the most, the image from the book that I can never get past, is his description of the city's aqueducts. He said, in the aqueducts, you, you could always find two things, all of the refuse and trash that people would throw out, which is so gross, but even grosser, was that you could always find young female infants because the, the Roman people were so obsessed with having sons to inherit that when they would have daughters, they would often just cast them out into the water or leave them in the sun. And, and these images crushed me and they crushed Rodney Stark as well. And this has always stuck with me because of the other portion of this story. Because one of the things that Rodney identified as the most important factors for the early growth of Christianity was what Christians did when they saw these things. Christ, nobody would go to the sick camps. Nobody would go near the, the ailing, the dying. But Christians would. The, nurse, the nurses, the ones who fed the sick, the dying, in these communities were always Christians. They would go not just with the gospel, but with food, with bandages, with their own clothes off their backs. Christians, famously, would dig through the collapsed portions of the city to help people find their stuff, and sometimes even their relatives that were buried under the walls. And Christians would had a routine in many local churches. We know for sure, like one of the most successful ones in Antioch, of walking up and down the aqueducts every single day looking for children who would miraculously still be alive. And they found many, so many, like this is a fun little Easter egg. They found so many in fact that there are some estimates in the early church that are around the end of the second century, the church was as much as 85% women. <laughs> That is how successful they were at seeking and caring for, for people who nobody else cared for. If that wasn't crazy enough, though, the consequences of their compassion completely reshaped the world. <laughs> because Rome, famously, was struck with several plagues near the end of the Pax Romana, near the end of their golden age. It's part of what ended the Roman Empire. And it devastated the populace. But guess who had a strong immunity to diseases due, due to their proximity to them for years? 
who had built up such a strong resistance to the diseases which had evolved and become some sort of pernicious plague that their entire communities tended to be immune from them? Well, the Christians. Well, Rome also had a problem because of its proximity with natural disasters, particularly earthquakes. And strangely enough, cities built on top of other portions of the city don't stand up very well. And in multiple cases in key hubs around the ancient Near East, portions of the city containing mostly Roman aristocrats would collapse and die as a consequence of these earthquakes, leaving the only remaining merchants and aristocrats in the city to be the Christians who had not taken advantage of the poor. (laughs) These, plus the fact that Rome increased the opportunity for women to get into business and to to lead, led to something that historians often overlook, which is the fact that when Constantine legalized Christianity when he formally declared his decree, he did so mostly because Christians were the largest and most powerful political force in the empire at that point. (laughs) And it was entirely because of their compassion. It was entirely because they loved their community. They didn't try and take over. They weren't trying to be conquerors. They just happened to be more than conquerors because of what the Spirit was doing through them, which really kind of puts into context verse 9, where we see, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good, O Jerusalem. (laughs) We need to see that the peace that the Lord has made between us and God the peace that we have amongst ourselves, within ourselves, is not just a gift to us, but to our neighbors as well. The peace we have is a call to mission to our communities where we are to seek the good of our city. It's a call on our lives that supersedes any other degree of citizenship we have. Because if we are found in Christ, no matter where we are born, no matter how we are raised, we are his people. We are his city. We are his kingdom. We work for the family business now. And one of our main responsibilities is to bless and love our neighbors. We know this. The Lord told us to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbors. How will the world know that we are his disciples? By our love for one another. This was true, and this is not like a spontaneously new thing. This was true for Israel when they were enslaved to Egypt. This was true for Israel when they were told to pray for Babylon. It was true for the early church when they were told to pray for Nero while he was using their children as sacrifices. Christians have always been called to love our city, to love our community. This was as true for the early church as it is for us today. And if we truly understand the peace that Christ has made, it will move us. We will see it as the call that it is. And there's five things I I will give you, because I, I, I like lists, I know many people do, that I think are very clear and consistent themes that we see throughout scripture and within this psalm as to what it looks like to love our city. 
One is we need to creatively, compassionately find ways to share the gospel with our city. We need to see youth groups and youth sports as mission fields. We need to, there was a ministry I was a part of that for years had a sign above the door that said, you are now entering the mission field. <laughs> and I love that. That, that. that is what we need to see when we are stepping into and out of our homes. We need to see grocery stores as opportunities to have gospel conversations. We need to see coworkers as neighbors who need the love of the gospel. We need to be generous and sacrificial and kind to our friends and our enemies because we're ambassadors of the city of God to Dalhart, to Amarillo, wherever we are. Point two, and this is one of the ones that I think is most important in a season like this one. We need to run towards pain, not away from it. As Christ saw our brokenness and pain and left his seed in glory to love us, so we need to do for our neighbors. That is what it means to love them as Christ did, to pursue them. We need to embrace the disabled, the confused, the lost. We need to not see the world raging at the stupid things that the world rages at, as an offense to us personally, but as a desperate cry for the hope of the gospel. It's easy to see everyone who we disagree with as enemies. It's hard to see them as lost sheep in need of a shepherd. It's hard to love people who, who do dumb things and say evil things, but they need the gospel. Point three, we need to cultivate our culture. God put Adam in the garden to turn breath into songs and words, to turn dust into bricks and to build cities, to take plants and to grow it into food. He, he wanted creation to be cultivated, to turn dry ground into beautiful representations of God's peace. And we need to create art and culture and civics that reflect where we are. I, I, I have this weird thing where I, I almost take offense to people watering their lawns in Amarillo continually because Amarillo without us is not a very green place. And I think these fields are beautiful. <laughs> I think we need to learn to love the community, to love the environment, to love the place that the Lord has given us. And that means loving Dalhart like Dalhart is. And now I, this is a church that I continually see doing that and that encourages me so deeply. It's one of the reasons I love to come here. I love to serve churches that love their community. That means the world to me. But we can always cultivate even more there's more that we can do. We, we can love our history, we can love our community. And one of the areas that we need to do this the most, and this is point four, is we need to see and love the dark places too. The areas not lit up by the peace of God right now are not obstacles, they're opportunities. They are places where we, as the people of God, are called to go 
We need to love people enough to call evil, evil. We cannot be weak. We cannot avoid confronting sin, but we also need to love people enough to go so that they can hear the gospel. And this leads to my fifth and final suggestion, and this is objectively the most important, hands down. We need to believe in God enough to pray for our city. We need to pray for peace in our city. If we genuinely believe that God is sovereign and all-powerful and all-good, then the greatest good that we can seek for our neighbors is to pray for them. There's nothing deeper, nothing more powerful, nothing more life-changing than being committed, devoted prayer warriors. Nothing else will quite conquer the darkness like the light who's entered the world. To conclude, scripture began many years ago in a garden, but it didn't stop there. What was a garden became a tower of a towering city of sin called Babel. The first city that we see was to man's hubris. But Babel fell, as has every Babylon since. Where we seek to ascend to God, we find shame and death. But where God descended to us, we find life. Where he came down himself, we find peace. We are witnesses to this in a world that is still trying to build towers. We are witnesses of the true and better city of God, the true and better peace from God. We need to remember continually to lift up gratitude and praise for what the Lord has done to our families, to our neighbors, and to our nations. Because one day, the Lord will bring down the city of New Jerusalem. And what is now a a world of peacelessness, of pain, will forever be a, a, a garden city of true shalom peace. What old Jerusalem only hinted at, New Jerusalem will be. The city of the Lord is a song we now sing to remind ourselves where the story ends. So let's sing with joy. Amen? Amen. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you have not left us to have to build a peace that we cannot build, to have to accomplish all that is necessary, Lord, to make this world right again, but you yourself have begun and will complete the process of making all things right. We look to you now, we look to the city, we look to the son of David and his promise and what he accomplished at the city of Jerusalem and we praise him. We say thank you, Lord Jesus, for you are our peace. Move us with hands, with words, to show that peace to our neighbors, to our families, to the nations. Let us embody the hope and the peace that you have made in the gospel and let us be satisfied in lifting that up to you continually. We pray this in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.
Please stand and sing with us. Oh, great God.